In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts, as we should always. Help us to understand this last portion of the Book of Wisdom, which uh, many people consider sort of unnecessary, but I see it is uh, got a lot to offer if it's looked upon in the right way. So help us then to see what that right way is. and Help us always to get the message that you want us to get for us individuals and individually. So we thank you for this time together and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Well, like I said, because this last portion is somewhat uh, centered with the early history of Judaism, um, many people dismiss it, and unfortunately, what they're dismissing is an important part uh, of this particular book. And I think one of the things that is uh, unique about it, in a way, it is the only book of the Old Testament, to my knowledge, that repeats a great deal of the book of Genesis as well as Exodus. None of the other books, to my knowledge, repeats virtually anything that is in the book of Genesis because Genesis was written long after most of the other books were written. Does that make sense? Now, it is the first book of the Bible and the first book of the Torah, uh, because of its history. But unfortunately for many of the people at that time period, it wasn't written until around the 5th century B.C. when the rest of the Bible was being brought together, presumably by the priest Ezra. We are not certain of who for sure, but we assume, we assume it was the priest Ezra uh, and under the help and influence of the prophet Nehemiah that brought the old histories of Judaism together and divided them by subject matter and re-edited them in many ways to come up with the structure of the Old Testament pretty much as we have it now. That is partly why the Book of Wisdom, as well as the Book of Sirach, was not accepted into the Old Testament, uh, that, that is the Jewish version of the Old Testament, or Hebrew, I should say, uh, partly because of the subject matter, partly because of where it was written, partly because it was written in Greek rather than Hebrew, uh, now, Sirach, we know, was originally written in Hebrew, but it was not accepted for that reason, uh, but then translated into Greek at a later time period, 60 or some years later, and then it was accepted by the people of North Africa and the rest of the diaspora, that is, those Jews who lived outside of Palestine, or Israel, uh, 
And then, of course, it was uh, picked up and put into the Greek version of the Old Testament. So that's kind of a brief history, and we'll go through a little bit more of it. The first uh, chapter, or the first chapter that we'll be uh, discussing today, chapter 10, has to do really with the great heroes of early Judaism. Now, in one of our previous classes, we talked about the number of partners that God had to have in order to get his plan of salvation implemented in the form of a Jewish nation. and this is the way we should look at some of these early Jewish heroes. Now, we also have partners in a later time period and even into uh, the New Testament. And when I say partners, it is that God, yes, could have done a lot of things totally on his own by snapping his fingers or just saying something, uh, but... As you probably know, most people accept things if they have had a little part in producing it or developing it or whatever. I remember when uh, I was employed uh, and had a number of people working for me, and if I wanted to implement something new, I always had to get those people involved in understanding what I was trying to implement and get them to participate. Then they would become part owners of it and it would develop much uh, more easily and be accepted more easily. And that's pretty much the way that God looked upon his implementation of his plan of salvation by having partners who were like the rest of us, picked out of normal society of the time and given jobs of great importance. Most of those people uh, had their names changed or in some way were identified as being uh, or having a certain amount of uh, closeness and representation from God himself. The greatest of these, of course, was uh, Abraham and Moses. But many of the others had a significant part in the implementation of this plan. And that is what the author of the Book of Wisdom is trying to do, is to draw attention to these people because they gave their life, their time, their energies, uh, to the implementation of God's plan. All right. The second part from chapter 11 to the end is really a uh, new look or a re-looking at the book of Genesis and Exodus as God's way of protecting and helping his people through a very difficult period. That difficult period really was the time that they spent in Egypt 
which started out fine, started out as really being guests uh, of the country, but then as time went on, uh, it turned into a slavery. <clears throat> Excuse me. The other time period, of course, is once they came back from Egypt into the Promised Land, uh, they were confronted by the people who had infiltrated this area during the three or four hundred years that they were in Egypt and set up uh, houses, uh, homes and cities and businesses, etc. And then when the uh, Israelites came back from Egypt into the Promised Land, uh, they were like invaders. But this was, again, God's part of God's plan of salvation, and we should not look upon it uh, in a negative way, as many people do. Uh, the destruction of the Canaanites, as portrayed in many uh, portions of the Old Testament, probably wasn't near as bad as it sounds. You have to remember that uh, in Jewish writing, one of the principal uh, techniques was exaggeration. We have an example of that in today's readings uh, in the Gospel, where Jesus is saying in the Gospel that unless you hate your father and mother and so forth and so on, you can't be my friend. Well, that is a form of exaggeration. And exaggeration was an important technique in Jewish writing simply because they had no other way to emphasize. So they used both exaggeration and repetition to emphasize certain points. So God is not really saying you got to hate your mother and father and so forth and so on. What he's really saying is you have to set priorities. And God always has to be at the top of the list of those priorities. But let us go through um, this last half and then we will talk about other things later. Anybody have any questions to begin with? Okay. Let's start from the beginning of chapter 10. She persevered, the first formed father of the world, when he alone had been created. Now, who is she? Lady Wisdom, that's right. And she raised him up from his fall and gave him power to rule over all things. Now, who is she talking about? Adam. Yes. Uh, the first... Uh, the first uh, verse there is about Adam. Let's go back to see how that works out. She first formed, the first formed father of the world. Well, obviously, Adam was the first man, the first formed father of the world. 
when he alone had been created by God. And she, wisdom, that is the Holy Spirit, raised him up from his fall, that is the sin of Adam, and gave him power to rule over all things. Remember, God had Adam name all of the animals and birds and plant life, etc., etc. But when an unrighteous man withdrew from wisdom, or her, in his anger, he perished through his uh, fratricidal, that's quite a word, fratricidal wrath. Uh, when his account, when on his account, the earth was flooded, wisdom again saved it. But who are we talking about in the first one? Cain. That's right. All right. <clears throat> when an unrighteous man, Cain killed Abel, withdrew from wisdom in his anger, he perished through his fratricidal wrath, that is, killing his brother. When on his account the earth was flooded, now we're talking about Noah, uh, when his account, uh, on his account the earth was flooded again, wisdom again saved it, piloting the righteous man on the frailest of wood. Let's go on to verse 5. She, that is wisdom, when the nations were sunk in universal wickedness, knew the righteous man, kept him blameless before God, and preserved him resolute against pity for his child. Who are we talking about there? Abraham. Right. Now the next one is not quite as evident. Wisdom rescued a righteous man from among the wicked who were being destroyed. When he fled as fire descended upon the Pentopolis. Pentopolis, the five cities. Okay. Whereas, uh, a whereas a testimony to its wickedness, even yet there remained a smoking desert. Now, what are they talking about here? Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. Um, whereas a testimony to its wickedness, even yet there remained a smoking desert, plants bearing fruit that never ripens, and the tomb uh, of a disbelieving soul, a standing pillar of salt. Who was that? All right, now there is one person that is referring to a woman that's Lot's wife. Yeah. All right. For those who forsook wisdom, not only were deprived of knowledge of good, but also left the world a memorial of their folly, so that they could not even be hidden in their fall. But wisdom rescued from tribulation those who served her. Now, the next one is a little bit longer and a little more detailed. She, when a righteous man fled from his brother's anger, and brothers should be in plural possessive rather than singular possessive, guided him in right ways, 
showed him the kingdom of God and gave him knowledge of holy things. Now, who are they talking about there? No, this is Joseph's father, Jacob. Okay. She, when a righteous man fled from his brother's anger. Remember, uh, Jacob was a twin, and the brother was Esau. Okay. Showed him the kingdom of God and gave him knowledge of holy things. She prospered him in his labors and made abundant the fruit of his works. Jacob was really, you know, the father of the twelve tribes and was a very prosperous man because he was very uh, beholden to the one true God. She proposed him in his, I'm sorry, she prospered him in his labors and made abundant the fruit of his works, stood by him against the greed of his defrauders and enriched him. She persevered, she, she, excuse me, she preserved him from his foes and secured him against ambush. And she gave him the prize of his hard struggle that he might know the devotion to God that Devotion to God is mightier than all else. Now is the time for Joseph. Wisdom did not abandon a righteous man when he was sold. Remember, Joseph was sold by his brothers, but rescued him from sin. She went down with him into the dungeon and did not desert him in his bonds, down into the dungeon. In other words, he was sold as a slave uh, to a group of Egyptians going down to Egypt until she brought him the scepter of royalty. He became uh, the number two man to the pharaoh and authority over his oppressors. Proved false those who had defamed him and gave him eternal glory. Remember, Joseph was a crew, uh, accused by Pettifer's wife uh, of uh, sexual assault. Uh, but he was proven to be innocent. The holy people and their blameless descendants, it was she who rescued them from the nation that oppressed them. And how did she do that? Through Moses. Okay. All right, from 15, uh, uh, yeah, from 15 on, that's Moses. The holy people and their blameless descendants. It was she who rescued them from the nation that oppressed them. She entered the soul of the Lord's servant, Moses, and withstood fearsome kings with signs and wonders, that is, the various plagues, etc. She gave the holy ones the reward of their labors. Conducted, all right, that's, that's it, yeah. Uh, she conducted them with a wondrous, uh, by a wondrous road and became a shelter for them 
by day, a starry flame by night. She took them across the Red Sea and brought them through the deep waters. Their enemies were overwhelmed and churned up from the bottom of the depths. That is the crossing of the Red Sea. Right. Therefore, the righteous despoiled the wicked and they sang your holy name, Lord. That is the song of Moses that is in uh, the book of Exodus. And it is also the first part or the first reading of the Easter Vigil Mass. That is the song of Moses. Therefore, the righteous despoiled the wicked and sang of your holy name, Lord, and praised in unison your conquering hand, because wisdom opened the mouths of the mute and gave ready speech to infants. So you see, the first, this chapter here, is all about praising the various partners, the various men uh, that actually were instrumental in implementing God's plan of salvation. And that is what it is all about. And we should look at it in that way, that when God wants something done, it will get done. Uh, we may not participate, we may not benefit. Excuse me. We may not always benefit from that directly, but indirectly we will. The other thing that I want you to see as we read the next section is that every nation that conquered or imprisoned Israel in one form or another throughout history has never developed into a powerful nation after that. If you think about the Egyptians, Egypt has never been a powerful nation after the exodus of the Israelites. Later on, the Canaanites never were a powerful nation. Assyria was never a powerful nation after they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century. Greece and Persia and Babylonia never became important. In fact, uh, except for Greece, none of those others exist today. And Greece has never been a powerful nation in itself. And even the Roman Empire eventually uh, disintegrated. And I think people have lost sight of that. The fact that God has protected Israel because it was the instrument through which he was to bring salvation. And in the Old Testament, its purpose was originally to be a model nation through whom God could speak to the other nations. Unfortunately, because of the sinfulness and the jealousy and all of that of the uh, Jewish people, 
they became uh, an exclusive nation and didn't want to bother with anyone else. They kept comparing themselves to others, but they wouldn't go out, reach out, uh, and bring others in as God wanted them to. If you read uh, the part of the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, it talks about that the purpose of the Jewish nation was to be a light to all the nations. And yet they refused to do that. So that's kind of the way you should look at these chapters. And uh, as we go on to 11 and more, you'll see the same kind of thing. Any questions so far? No, they weren't. Mm -hmm. That was a culture that they developed on their own. But that was not God's way of wanting them to do things. No. Now, at one point in time, you're probably thinking of when the apostles went, wanted to go out and start preaching on their own while Jesus was still living. And he told them not to go into Samaria. That's You might be thinking of that particular point, but there was a separate reason for that. Let's go on to chapter 11. Now, 11 through 19 is probably not an easy way to look at it, but you have to step back and see what is God really trying to do. And the whole premise of these eight or nine chapters is that God protects those people who are working directly for him. And the whole idea of protecting the Jewish nation was the premise of this writing. And it's interesting because, as I said earlier, this was written by a man from the diaspora, that is, from Alexandria, Egypt. He was not a Palestinian Jew. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. And he was trying to educate the Greek-speaking people on the importance of the book of Genesis, but more so on the book of Exodus. And that is the purpose of these chapters here. He was not written for you and me. He was not written for the 21st century. He was writing for the 2nd century B.C. Well, God must have got really out of sorts with his man, huh? With whom? Well, he's the Jewish people. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Very much so. And we see that particularly uh, through the prophets. And, of course, that's why the the prophets died out after the 5th century because they were not being accepted anyways. And God left them on their own. Let's go on to chapter 11 here. Again, we have the idea of wisdom being personified uh, in the, the female voice. 
she prospered their affairs through the holy prophet. Excuse me. The holy prophet Moses, of course. They journeyed through the uninhabited desert, and in lowly places they pitched their tents. They withstood enemies and warded off their foes. When they thirsted, they called upon you, O Lord, and water was given them from the sheer rock, a quenching of their thirst from the hard stone. For by the things through which their foes were punished, they in their need were benefited. In other words, from now on you'll see, and this is very common in Jewish writings, particularly in the uh, wisdom books in general, is the comparisons. You'll have the good and the bad constantly being compared. And throughout these chapters, uh, the Israelites or the Jewish people are being compared to the others around them. And for by these things through which their foes were punished, they in their need were benefited. In one of the uh, Psalms, I forget which one, offhand, uh, it says, uh, I have stopped to think about the, the wording now. It says, by the way you treated the Gentiles, you have influenced the Israelites. And now, by the way you are treating the Israelites with glory, you are trying to train and teach uh, the Gentiles. It's, it's a constant comparison of one towards the other. There. <clears throat> this next group here is how water is the influence or the medium of exchange and how water has benefited the Israelites and troubled in some way or other the Egyptians. Instead of a river's perennial source, troubled with impure blood, remember? One of the plagues was that the water of the Nile was turned into blood. Uh, instead of the river's perennial source troubled with impure blood as a rebuke to the decree for the slaying of infants. Remember, the infants were slain at the time that Moses was just an infant. You gave them abundant water upon their hope. After you had shown by their thirst, they experienced how you punished their adversaries. For when they had been tried, through only, though only mildly chastised, they recognized how the wicked, condemned in anger, were being tormented. That is the plague, <clears throat> not the time of Moses' uh, early life. You tested your own people admonishing them as a father would. But as a stern king, you probed and condemned the wicked. Those near and far were equally affected. For a twofold grief took hold of them, 
and a groan of the remembrance of the ones who had departed. For when they heard that the cause of their own torments was a benefit to those others, they recognized the Lord. Remember, the plagues affected the Egyptian people, but not, did not affect the Hebrews or the Jewish people. How that happened, I have no way to explain. Um, it's, it's kind of difficult to understand, but that is what we are told. For though they had mocked and rejected him, that is Moses, who had been cast out and abandoned long ago, that's when he was a child, remember, and his mother put him in a basket and sent him down the river to uh, preserve his life. Uh, in the final outcome, they marveled at him. And since their thirst proved unlike that of righteousness, in return for their senseless, wicked thoughts, that is, the Egyptians now, which misled them into worshiping dumb serpents and worthless insects, you, wisdom, sent upon them swarms of dumb creatures for vengeance. In other words, God is getting back at them for worshiping all kinds of uh, animals and insects and statues, etc., etc. Okay. You sent upon them swarms of dumb creatures for vengeance that they might recognize that one is punished by the very things through which one sins. Quite often you'll see, uh, and in several of the Psalms, it'll say something about they dug a ditch uh, for their enemies but fell into it themselves. And this is the same kind of thing here. For not without means was your almighty hand that has fashioned the universe from formless matters to send upon them many bears or fierce lions or newly created wrathful unknown beasts breathing forth fire, fiery breath or pouring out roaring smoke or flashing terrible sparks from their eyes. Not only could these attack and completely destroy them, even if their frightful appearance itself could slay. Now they're talking about uh, the worshipping of animals that if they were alive could have devoured or you know destroyed the Egyptians themselves but uh, of course they were not even with these they could have been killed at a single blast pursued by justice and winnowed by your mighty spirit but you have disposed all things by measure and number and weight for great strength is always present with you. Who can, who can resist the might of your arm? Indeed, before you, the whole universe is like a grain from a balance or a drop of morning dew come down from the earth, come down upon the earth. But you have mercy on all because you can do all things and you overlook sins 
for the sake of repentance. For you love all things that are, and loathe nothing that you have made. For you would not fashion what you hate. How could a thing remain unless you willed it, or be preserved had it not been called for, called forth by you? But you spare all things because they are yours, O ruler and lover of souls, for your imperishable spirit is in all things. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is in all things. And therefore you rebuke offenders with little by little, warn them and remind them of the sins they are committing, that they may abandon their wickedness and believe in you. For truly, the ancient inhabitants of your holy land, uh, we're talking about whom? This is talking about the Canaanites after the Egyptians have moved back uh, from Egypt into the promised land. For truly, the ancient inhabitants of your holy land, whom you hated for deeds uh, most uh, odious, works of sorcery and impious sacrifices. Remember, the Canaanites had all kinds of gods similar to the ones uh, in Egypt. Not the same, but similar. Okay. These merciless murderers of children, devourers of human flesh, and... Um, initiates engaged in a blood ritual and parents who took with their own hands defenseless lives, that is, their children, you willed to destroy by the hands of our ancestors, that is, the Jewish people, that the land that is dearest of all to you, that is, the promised land, might receive a worthy colony of God's servants. But even these you spared since they were but mortals and sent wasps as forerunners of your army that they might exterminate them by degrees. Now, historians tell us that this is written in a very difficult way to understand that the destruction of the Canaanites was probably not near as uh, severe and intense as it is in this writing. Again, this is another example of exaggeration. And it is meant in, for impressing future people who were to read this. That is, the Hebrews again. It was not written for the 21st century. Not that you were without power to have the wicked vanquished, in battle by the righteous, or wiped out at once by terrible beasts or by one decisive word. But condemning them by degrees, you gave them space for repentance. And many of the Canaanites did come over to the uh, Jewish ways of thinking. You were not unaware that their origins were wicked and their malice ingrained and that their dispositions would never change. For they were a people that cursed from the beginning. 
neither out of fear for anyone did you grant release from their sins. For you can say, for who can say to you, what have you done? Or who can oppose your decree? Or when peoples perish, you can challenge, who can challenge you, their maker? Or who can come into your presence to vindicate the righteous? Here they're talking about how correct it was for the Hebrew people to reconquer the promised land from the Canaanites. It was because of God's will and the whole idea of the implementation of his plan of salvation, which they were not quite aware of in the detail that we are today. But whatever God willed, that was uh, their will also. For neither is there any God besides you who have the care of all that you need show you have not unjustly condemned. Nor can any king or prince confront you on behalf of those you have punished. But as you are righteous, you govern all things righteously. You regard it as unworthy of your power to punish one who has incurred no blame. For your might is the source of righteousness. Your mastery over all things makes you lenient of all. I think what he's trying to do is kind of justify a lot of the uh, slaughter that went on. For you show your might when the perfection of your power is disbelieved. And in those who know you, you rebuke insolence. But through you are master of might, but though you are master of might, you judge with clemency, and with much leniency you govern us for power whenever you will attend us. You taught your people by these deeds, your people, meaning Israel, the Jewish people, that those who are righteous must be kind and you gave your children reason to hope that you would allow them to repent for their sins. For these were enemies of your servants, doomed to death. Yet, while you punish them with such solitude and indulgence, granting them... It doesn't make sense, does it? For those... I'm sorry? Well, for these were enemies of your servants doomed to death. Yet, oh, the servants were doomed to death. Okay. Yet, while you punished them with such solitude and indulgence, granting them time and opportunity to abandon wickedness, with that exactitude you judged your children to, oh, to whose ancestors you gave foreign covenants of godly promises. Therefore, to give us a lesson, you punish our enemies with measured deliberation so that we might think earnestly of your goodness when we judge. And when being judged, we may look for mercy. Hence, 
those unrighteously who live the life of folly. Remember, folly is the opposite of wisdom. You tormented through their own abominations, for they went far astray in the paths of error, taking for gods the worthless and disgusting among beasts, being deceived like senseless infants. Therefore, as though upon unreasonable uh, reasoning children, you sent your judgment on them as a mockery. But they who took no heed of a punishment, which was but child's play, were to experience a condemnation worthy of God. For by the things, though, which they suffered distress, being tortured by the very things they deemed gods, they saw and recognized the true God whom formerly they had refused to know. With this, their final condemnation came upon them. They were totally conquered. I don't think all of the Canaanites were conquered. Many of, many of them were assimilated into Jewish society. Chapter 13 begins the series on the worship of nature. I don't think worship in this case is the proper word, but uh, appreciation, but some of it got taken uh, a little too far. Foolish by nature were all who were in ignorance of God and who from a good from the good things seen, did not succeed in knowing the one who is and studying the works, uh, did not discern the artist. Instead, either fire or wind or the swift air or the circuit of the stars or the mighty water or the luminaries of heaven, the governors of the world, they considered gods. Remember, it was the Egyptians that actually develop astrology uh, that is the study of the uh, planets and it was the Egyptians that gave most of them uh, their names. Now, if out of joy in their beauty they thought them gods, that's what they did. The Egyptians thought these were gods and the Canaanites did the same. Let them know how far more excellent is the Lord than these. For the original source of beauty fashioned them. That is, God is the one that created all that they are now worshiping. Or if they were struck by their might and energy, let them realize from these things how much more powerful is the one who made them. Not again. For from the greatness and the beauty of created things, their original author, by analogy, is seen. But yet for these the blame is less. For they have gone astray, perhaps though they seek God and wish to find him. For they search busily among his works, are distracted by what they see 
because the things seen are fair. Sometimes when you're looking for something uh, very precious, very uh, necessary, needed, wanted, etc., it's right in front of you, but you don't see it because you're distracted by so many other things. But again, not even these are pardonable. For if they so far succeeded in knowledge that they could speculate about the world, how did they not quickly find its Lord and God? But wretched are they, and indeed things are their hopes, who turned God's things made by human hands. This is the statues and so forth that they would worship. Gold and silver, the product of art, and images of beasts, are useless stone, the work of an ancient hand. A carpenter may cut down a suitable tree and skillfully scrape off all its bark, and deftly plying his art, produce something fit for daily use. and use the scraps from his handiwork in preparing his food and having his fill. In other words, an artist might take a piece of wood and uh, fashion an article, a useful article, out of that wood, and the scraps that are scraped off can be used uh, for fuel. Okay. When the good-for-nothing refused these remnants, crooked wood grown full of knots, he takes and carves to occupy his spare time. This wood he models with mindless skill and patterns it on the image of a human being or makes it resemble some worthless beast. When he has dubbed it with red and crimson, its surface with red stain and daubed over every blemish in it, he makes a fitting shrine for it and puts it on the wall. In other words, he is now worshiping something that he himself built. This is not God. This is a human being. Fastening with a nail. Thus he provides for it at least, if, unless it fall down. Knowing that it cannot help itself, for truly it is an image and needs help. But when he prays about his goods or marriage or children, he is not ashamed to address the thing without a soul. For vigor, he invokes the powerless. For life, he entreats the dead. For aid, he beseeches the holy incompetent. For travel, something that cannot even walk. For profit in business and success with his hands, he asks power of a thing with hands utterly powerless. I want to stop for a minute just to tell you a little side story. Have any of you seen the... Let, let's go back to four. Showing that you can save from any danger so that even one without skill may embark. But you, but you will that the products of your wisdom be not idle. Therefore, people must trust their lives even to the most frail wood. And we're safe crossing the waves on a raft. For of old, 
when the proud giants were being destroyed, the hope of the universe, who took refuge on a raft, left the world a future for the human family under the guidance of your hand. For blessed is the wood through which righteousness comes about. Uh, of course, this is 2nd century B.C., but if you think about it, this next verse, blessed is the wood through which righteousness comes about. What does that bring to mind? The cross. Yes, by all means, the cross. <coughs> but the handmade idol is accursed, and its maker as well. And that's why Judaism and Islam even today forbids photographs, paintings, and carvings or images of any kind. Judaism has kind of sort of digressed from that. But Islam is extremely Islam forbids making pictures, paintings, idols of any kind. So they do not have any images today. Yeah. No. So that was, remember, Salman Rushdie and somebody else wrote a, a book sort of criticizing Mohammed, and they went after him. Well, I don't think they ever got the author, but Salman Rushdie had to hide for a number of years because of what he wrote. <clears throat> All right. Equally odious to God are the evildoers and the evil deed, and the thing made will be punished with its maker. See, the whole idea of worshiping things is abominable to God because only God can be worshipped. And yet it's amazing how many people will have statues or even a crucifix and practically worship it. You've got to be very careful as to how far you go in honoring even what things, you know, holy things appear to be today. Statues in our church cannot do any good unless you are being reminded of who they are and are praying to God or praying to a saint for intercession to God. But if you're praying to the statue, thinking the statue is going to help you, uh, you know, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. And God will dishonor your prayer. So you've got to be extremely careful when you are venerating statues or other religious objects. Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with them, provided you use them as a memento to remember. To remember the person of the photo, uh, but to pray to a picture or a statue, expecting that the statue is going to do you some good, 
you're going to be sadly mistaken. Not to worship a statue. That's right. You can't worship a statue. That's what this is all about. Yeah. Help you pray. So, help you pray. To help you remember what that person represents. Remember or reminder. Reminder, that's right. Yes. The origins and did you have a question, Julie? The origins and evils of idolatry, chapter fourteen, verse twelve. The source of wantonness is the devising of idols and their intervention and their invention, a corruption of life. You see, this was very prominent, very common throughout the Old Testament time period. If you read the story about King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, uh, it's all about the idolatry that Jezebel brought in to the northern kingdom. And that is the basis for uh, of its demise. God got so fed up, even though he sent several prophets up there to try to tell the people that they were wrong. Uh, they did not listen, and most of the prophets were killed by their own people because they didn't like what the prophets had to say. And so God allowed the Assyrians to come in and wipe out the whole northern kingdom. <laughs> For the sources of wantonness is the devising of idols and their invention of corruption of life. For in the beginning they were not, nor can they ever continue. For from human emptiness they came into the world. In other words, they were animated materials of God's creation. And therefore, a sudden end is devised for them. For a father afflicted with untimely mourning made an image of the child so quickly taken from him and now honored as a god, but once was dead and handed down to his household <coughs> mysteries and sacrifices. This is an example now. This is not a historical events. It says, a father who was afflicted with untimely mourning because of losing a child uh, creates an image of the child <coughs> and honors that as if it was a god and handed down and hands down really uh, to his household and his family mysteries and sacrifices. Then in the course of time, the impious practice gained strength and was observed as law. And graven things were worshipped by royal decrees. People who lived so far away that they could not honor him in his presence copied the appearance of the distant king and made a public image of him. They see how things multiply when they are accepted as real. They can multiply and gain uh, prominence far beyond what was originally intended. And made a public image of him they worship to honor out of zeal to flatter the absent one as though present and to promote this observance among those to whom it 
was strange. The artisan's ambition provided stimulus. For he, perhaps in his determination to please the ruler, labored over the likeness to the best of, see, this is getting to the point where now uh, the image has now developed into something that the king has made. And you have the same thing in the book of Daniel, where the king makes this image and makes everybody worship it. And of course, Daniel and his three friends refuse to do so, and that becomes part of, of the story of the book. For he, perhaps in his determination to please the ruler, labored over the likeness to the best of his skill, and the masses, drawn by the craft of the workmanship, soon took an ob as an object of worship the one who shortly before was honored as a human being. And this became a snare for the world, the people enslaved to either greed or tyranny conferred the incommutable uh, name on stones and wood. Then it was not enough for them to err in their knowledge of God. But even though they lived in a great war resulting from ignorance, they call such evils peace. For a while they practiced uh, either child sacrifice or occult mysteries or frenzies housing and exotic rites. They no longer respect either lives or purity of marriage. But either way, but either waylay and kill each other or grieve. In other words, it just gets on and on and on. I'm going to skip over some of this here because I would like to get to the ending um, of this and talk about a few other things before we leave. If you go over to chapter 18 at verse 5, we go back and sort of get back into the importance of Moses and some of uh, the people at that time. When they determined to put to death the infants of the holy ones, that is, the infants uh, at the time of Moses being an infant, and when a single boy, that is Moses, had been cast forth and then saved by the Pharaoh's daughter, as a reproof, you carried off a multitude of their children and made them perish all at once in the mighty water. That night was known beforehand to our ancestors, so that with sure knowledge of the oath in which they put their faith, they might have courage. The expectation of your people was the salvation of the righteous and the destruction of their foes. For by the same means with which you punished our adversaries, you glorified us whom you had summoned. For in secret, the holy children of the good were offering sacrifice and carried out with one mind the divine institution. What is the divine institution? 
remember, we're talking about at the time of Moses, after the plagues, what happened? The Passover, yes, that's it. The divine institution is the Passover. This is the beginning of the first of the sacrifices and the first offering that the Jewish people could make back to God for deliverance. For in secret, remember they did this totally on their own in haste. The holy children of the good were offering sacrifice and carried out with one mind the divine institution, that is the Passover, uh, original Passover meal, so that your holy ones should share alike the same blessings and dangers once they had sung the ancestral hymns of praise. But the discordant cry of their enemies echoed back, that is, the slaughter of the firstborn. And the propitious, the piteous rather, wail of mourning for children was born to them. And the slave was smitten with the same retribution as the master. In other words, the firstborn male of man and beast alike. Even the commoner suffered the same as the king. And all alike, by one common form of death, had countlessly dead. For the living were not even sufficient for the burial, since a single instant their most valued offspring, that is the firstborn, had been destroyed. For though they disbelieved that every turn on account of sorceries at the destruction of the firstborn, they acknowledged that this people was God's son. Now, you got to be careful when you say God's son in this case. They do not mean Christ. They mean Judaism as a faith. For when peaceful stillness encompassed everything and the night in its swift course was half spent, your all-powerful word from heaven's royal throne leapt into the doomed land, a fierce warrior bearing a sharp sword of your inexorable de decree. This was the angel of death that went through and slaughtered the firstborn of all the Egyptians, uh, the result of the last plague. Well, let's just go back to 15 here. Your all-powerful word from heaven's royal throne leapt into the doomed land, a fierce warrior bearing the sharp sword of your inexorable decree and alighted and, and filled every place with death and touched heaven while standing upon the earth. Then at once visions in horrible dreams uh, perturbed them and unexpected fears assailed them. They cast half dead, uh, one here, another there, they revealed why they were dying. For the dreams that disturbed them had proclaimed this beforehand, lest they perish unaware of why they endured such evil. Now this is the, the Egyptians, again, were 
totally made aware that this would happen by Moses as part of the last plague. And the Pharaoh still refused. But then after this, seeing the destruction and fearing that more would happen, he eventually then relented and allowed them to leave. But then, of course, later he changes his mind. The trial of death touched even the righteous, and in the desert a plague struck the multitude. Yet not for long did the anger last, for the blameless man hastened to their champion. Now, who is the blameless man? You know this story, and you read some of the history of that particular time period. This is Aaron, Moses' brother. Uh, For the blameless man, Aaron, hastened to be their champion, bearing the weapon of his special office, which was incense, prayer and the propitiation of incense. He withstood the wrath and put a stop to the calamity. Calamity, uh, calamity, excuse me. (coughs) Showing that he was your servant. He overcame the bitterness, not by bodily strength, not by force of arms, but by, by word he overcame the smiter, recalling the sworn covenants with their ancestors. For when corpses had already fallen, one upon another in heaps, He stood in the midst and checked the anger and cut off its way uh, to the living. For on his full-length robe was the whole world and and ancestral glories were carved on the four rows of stones. This is how Moses' uh, garments were adorned. And your grandeur was on the crown upon his head To these the destroyer yielded, uh, these he feared. For this soul trial anger sufficed. But mercilessness, wrath assailed the wicked until the end. For God knew beforehand what they were yet to do. That through them, through they themselves, had agreed to the departure and had anxiously sent them on their way they would regret it and pursue them remember this is after the death of the firstborn the pharaoh not only released the uh, hebrews and allowed them to go but he encouraged his own people to give them anything they wanted just to get rid of them and primarily uh, jewelry gold, etc., because that's what they used eventually to build the Ark of the Covenant. So that's what 19 is about. But merciless, merciless wrath assailed the wicked until the end, for God knew beforehand what they were yet to do, that through they themselves had a but though they themselves had agreed to the departure and anxiously set them on their way, they would regret it and pursue them. 
for while they were still engaged in funeral rites and mourning at the burials of the dead, they adopted another senseless plan. And those who were, whom they had driven out with entreaties, they now pursued as fugitives. Okay. I'm going to skip over because time is getting short, but I want to talk about a few other things here. Skip over to 14 here. For those others did not receive unfamiliar visitors, but those, this is a story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah again. I don't know why it's being repeated here, but nevertheless. For those others did not receive unfamiliar visitors, but these were enslaving benefits. Well, you know what I mean. (laughs) And not uh, that only but uh, what punishment was to be theirs since they received strangers unwillingly. Okay. And yet these, after welcoming them with festivities oppressed with awful toils, those who had shared with them the same rites. Uh, I want to go right to the end here. This ends this whole story of idolatry and the comparisons of those who oppressed the Hebrews um, were punished and the Hebrews benefited. <clears throat> the last verse is a doc- doxology. It happens to end all of the books of wisdom. The last verse will always be a praise of God. That is sort of the way all of the books of wisdom end. For every way, Lord, you magnify and glorify your people. Unfailing, you stood by them in every circumstance. The end. Now, again, I, I want to caution you when you think about it a little and in other reading, keep in mind that every nation that has oppressed or conquered uh, Israel throughout history has never in itself benefited from that. And in many cases, many of those countries have disappeared altogether. I hope you've gotten something out of studying the books of wisdom and even if they aren't something that you are going to be reading carefully all the time, it rounds out your coverage of the Old Testament and I think shows that there are a number of books that the Jewish people have somewhat ignored and I think in many cases, uh, because Martin Luther adopted the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, I think many Christians have not been uh, exposed to the books of Sirach and Wisdom. And that is a unfortunate loss because I think many of them, most of them, all of them, have a great deal to offer. That is the seven books of Wisdom. Now, of course, we all know that uh, the book of Psalms is very much used, 
by both Jewish and Christians. Uh, but most of the other books are not. And that's unfortunate. Uh, next week, we are going to have a movie. And it kind of brings together a lot of the things that we have talked about here. That is, love expressed through wisdom and wisdom expressed through our relationships with others. I want to show this movie and then have a discussion period after as to what you think about it. Uh, there is a uh, incident in there that I will explain before we watch the movie so that you don't overlook it. Uh, but it's important that you understand the interesting way that the Holy Trinity is being portrayed as real people in this movie. Uh, and also Lady Wisdom is being portrayed as an individual uh, and a woman, of course, by this uh, in this case. Uh, so I really hope that all of you will join us. The unfortunate part about it is that it is a little over two hours long, which means if we start right at the dot of 9.30, uh, we wouldn't get over until about a quarter to 12. And then with a discussion afterwards, so I hope that you will plan for that and stay for the discussion because that's where I think we can bring much of what we've learned together. Any questions? Well, Hades is the place of final damnation, according to Jewish beliefs. But there is no definition. You know, I, you, they can't go any further because they have never developed that kind of theology. Well, it's something like mythology, but it isn't. It is their belief. Yeah. yeah. And the shale is sort of like a limbo or a purgatory. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? All right. Hope to see you next week. Let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for putting up with us and helping us. And I hope you will continue to help us understand the importance of the virtue of wisdom as described and intended through these books. It is not something that we can learn out of a book. It is not something that we can learn from other people. It is only through your help and your gift that you grant us an infilling of the gift of wisdom. So help us to do that, we implore you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.